Please join me in your Bibles in Acts chapter 17. We'll be reading verses 16 through 34. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some, some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing of something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. The word of God. Let's pray together. Father God, as we come to your word and to this wonderful portion of your word in which is recorded for us Paul's heart and Paul's zeal for your glory and also Paul's sense of urgency to preach the gospel to the lost. We ask God that you would open our minds up, that you would illuminate your truth to us and help us to understand it and help us to be impacted by it this morning so that Father we can continue to grow by your grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ so that our lives can be continued to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, and so that we can continue to be useful to you in your kingdom as you cause your truth to be proclaimed in this world and the light of your truth to shine in the darkness of this place. And so, Father, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You'll notice maybe that I changed the title of the sermon this week from what I had sent out in the electronic version of the bulletin a little earlier in the week. I had originally titled it very boringly and prosaically, Paul at the Areopagus. I just then um, couldn't stand that title and I couldn't resist the alliteration even though I really don't normally like alliteration. I feel like it's kind of forced and cheesy but In this case, it seemed like these two words, provocation and proclamation, very much seemed to to sum up the main emphasis of this story of Paul at the Areopagus in the city of Athens. And so that's how I want us to take in this 
well-known story in Acts 17 today. I want us to, to focus on the provocation that Paul felt in his soul because of all of the worldliness and idolatry in Athens, and then also how he responded to that provocation through the proclamation of the truth of God's Word and the Gospel. So remember with me last week, in the opening portion of Acts chapter 17, in the first 15 verses, we saw that Paul and Silas, having left Philippi, um, arrived at the big metropolis of Thessalonica, and once again they came bringing the gospel to the city through teaching and preaching in the Jewish synagogue on consecutive Sabbath days. That was Paul's most typical MO, his most typical strategy to head straight to the synagogue and reason with the Jewish people from the scriptures and proclaim that Jesus is the one and only true Messiah and that the Old Testament scriptures spoke of him and prophesied of him and and declared that he had come and suffered and died and been raised from the dead in order to deal with human sinfulness. And then we saw that in Thessalonica there was by the sovereign power and grace of the Holy Spirit, a lot of positive response to the gospel. Some Jewish people came to faith. Many Gentile people came to faith, including some of the prominent and wealthy women in the city. And came the, they came to believe in Jesus as the only true Messiah. But there was also, because of the stubborn, sinful, prideful hardness of human hearts, there was a lot of resistance, wasn't there? There was a lot of opposition to the gospel. And so the Jews, in their jealousy against God, stirred up a mob. And the mob went raging through the streets of Thessalonica, and they came to the house that Paul and Silas had been staying at, the house of a man named Jason, and they tried to find Paul and Silas there. They wanted to drag them out into the streets, into the middle of this angry crowd and try to shut them up, try to silence them, maybe even try to put them to death. But they weren't able by God's providence to find Paul and Silas, and so they dragged Jason and some of the other Christian brothers out before the city authorities and accused them of sedition, accused them of aiding and abetting Paul and Silas and turning the world upside down with the gospel. And the message that Jesus Christ is the King. And so the city authorities were bothered by all this. And yet they knew there wasn't a whole lot they could do. They made Jason and the others pay bail, essentially. And then they let them go. So Paul and Silas then, at the end of chapter, or or verse 15 there, they were spirited away by night by some of the Christians, by some of the brothers. They were, they were taken to the city of Berea, which is about 50 miles to the west of Thessalonica there in Greece. And in Berea, the Holy Spirit worked powerfully, didn't He, in the hearts and the minds of the Jewish people, even in the synagogue. And by and large, they received the Word of God in contrast to the Jewish people in Thessalonica. They looked intently into the Scriptures. They honored God's Word as God's Word. And they recognized that what Paul and Silas were, were, were teaching and preaching and proclaiming was actually, in fact, what God's Word clearly reveals and speaks of in the Old Testament Scriptures. And then, verse 13 says, all of these angry, jealous Jewish people from Thessalonica traveled 50 miles on foot to Berea, all the way over there, just in order to stir up trouble there also, and try to agitate, it says, and stir up the crowds in Berea against Paul. These guys, right? The audacity of the sinful human heart that shakes its fist at God and opposes His Word and opposes the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And in that regard, there's absolutely nothing new under the sun, is there? Nothing has changed between Paul's time back there in the first century and our own time in the 21st century. Nothing has changed in terms of human beings raging against God and raging against His Word. Well, once again, the 
the brothers, it says, some of the Christians there in Berea, now that the Jews have come from Thessalonica and are stirring up trouble again, once again, some of the brothers protected Paul. This time they put him on a boat, headed way, way far down south through the Aegean Sea to the city of Athens. We're told that Silas, along with Timothy, who had now caught up with them, those guys stayed back in Berea and they would come to join Paul in Athens later. And so that brings us to verse 16. Paul is in Athens and he's by himself. He's waiting for Timothy and Silas to come. And he's in this great city of Athens. Athens was, in its, in its heyday, one of the most prominent and powerful cities in the Greek Empire. Now in Paul's day, in the days of the Roman Empire, Athens is under Roman control and it's still a big, influential, prominent, powerful city, but not as much as the Roman-built city of Corinth, which is over to the west, which is where Paul will head next. But still, Athens is a big, busy, bustling place of commerce and of culture. It's only three miles inland from the coast and from all the major ports and so like all big bustling busy cities at that time and and at all times in our time Athens was absolutely packed full of culture you know this word culture it comes from the same Latin word that we get our word cultivate from culture is just what sprouts up and and grows out of the mindset and the worldview and the value system of any particular group of people, of any particular society, according to their ideals, according to their understanding of the world, according to their definitions of what is true and good and beautiful in the world. And in Athens, like any other place, any other major, major city in this fallen world that rebels against God and suppresses his truth, the worldview, right, the value system obviously was not rooted and grounded in what God says is true and good and beautiful. Instead, it's rooted to the fallen, sin-corrupted ideas and ideals and understanding and values and definitions of sinful people. So Athens was a worldly city in the sense, in the biblical sense of the word worldly, which is in contrast to the word godly. Athens was an ungodly place. Athens was a worldly place. And so you can imagine in Athens there existed every kind of sinful vice, every kind of idolatry, every kind of worldly, unbiblical philosophy. Every kind of godless immorality that the sinful heart can conjure up existed in Athens. And so, picture Paul here now. He's all alone. He doesn't know anybody. Silas and Timothy are still up in Berea. The brothers from Berea who had brought Paul down to Athens have departed now, it says. They've gone back home to bring word to Silas and Timothy to to come eventually and join Paul in Athens. But, but here he is now, he's been deposited there by himself, all alone, and so he's, he's checking out the city. And he's looking all around and walking the streets of this great city and taking in all of the worldly culture. And as he's taking it all in, he's not impressed. Right? He's not like a typical tourist who goes and whatever the culture of any given city, they just drink it up and they love it. Paul sees it for what it is. He sees all the ungodliness, all the paganism, all the unbelieving suppression of the truth of God being manifested in all kinds of ways. It's being expressed in all kinds of idolatry all around the city. And and also in all of the, the immorality that always gets cultivated out of the, the rancid soil of idolatry. And so verse 16 says that Paul's spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And I would suspect that every one of you who's here today and listening today understands what that means. can instantly relate 
to what that means. Do you get provoked about the world around you sometimes? And the idolatry and the godlessness in our world? The word provoked just means to get extremely agitated inside. Even to get angry. To get distressed. And that's how Paul was feeling. When he got to Athens, he didn't enjoy, he didn't appreciate the culture that he saw there. Again, because he saw it and he understood it for what it was. He, it was the rotten, toxic fruit that had been cultivated from hearts of unbelief and lives that were being lived according to the corrupt desires of the sinful flesh instead of according to what pleases and honors the one true God of the universe. In Athens, people had carved out idols, literally, by the work of their own hands, and they were, and they were bowing down to them and worshiping these graven images as gods. They were serving carved things and pretending that they were false and imaginary gods instead of worshiping the one true God. They were suppressing the truth of God. They were refusing to honor God as Lord. They were exchanging truth for lies. They were literally worshiping the creation instead of the Creator. And Paul was hacked off about it, frankly. He was angry. He was incensed. His spirit was filled with contempt and with disgust and with hatred for the culture that he saw there in Athens. And that's what verse 16 means when it says that his spirit was provoked within him. Now, can you relate? I know a lot of you can as you look around in our world, 21st century America, and you see all that is worldly all that is ungodly in the world around us. It can be maddening, right? To see all of the ways in which our own society is is culturally shaking its fist at the Almighty and raging against His truth and raging against the one true gospel. One little example. I saw a picture in a magazine recently that showed a falcon, beautiful bird, and it was in flight, so it had its wings tucked. So it's, it's just soaring through the air with its wings tucked, and it had this beautiful shape to it. And then right next to that picture, they had placed a picture of an Air Force stealth bomber in flight, and the profile of the two was almost identical. The profile of the bomber looked exactly like the profile of this bird in flight because the company that designed the bomber deliberately designed it after the shape of the falcon because they recognized the idealness of the falcon's own design for for flight. And the caption next to this picture said, truly, Mother Nature is the best designer. And I thought, how ridiculous is that statement? And it made me It made me mad. Right? I mean, here we live in this world that on the one hand recognizes how precisely, how ideally things in creation are designed and uses words like designed all the time to describe things in creation. But then, then this world wants to attribute the design of all those things to something called Mother Nature instead of to the Holy God of creation. And then the world has the audacity to deny that this God exists. And then very paradoxically, they want to claim that the things that they just said were designed by Mother Nature really actually just evolved over billions of years of random, purposeless, undirected mutation, even though they look so well designed. I mean, the handiwork of God is literally staring them in the face. Declaring his glory, declaring his power as the eternal creator. And the world just robs him of that glory and, 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 and assigns it to Mother Nature instead. Literally worshiping the creation instead of the creator. And it, I mean, that provokes my spirit, right? To say nothing about all of the other garbage going on in this world that exchanges 
the beauty of God's holiness for the corrupt, disgusting, rancid wickedness that this world is promoting, right? To say nothing about the transgender and transsexual people who are coming in and invited, they're being invited to come in to elementary schools and libraries all around this country to read transgender stories and literature to impressionable little children. That provokes my spirit. That hacks me off. And say nothing about the parents who think that's a great idea and bring their little children to that corruption. And to say nothing about how our media and our government are just going out of their way to promote and celebrate agendas like that and then to censor and demonize anyone who would dare question it. And to say nothing about the almost 64 million now image-bearing babies who have just been slaughtered just since Roe versus Wade was forced on the states in 1973. And that's just the recorded number, 64 million on record. And that's just in America. And to say nothing about all of the cultural Marxism that's now being cultivated in our universities and by our government and all over the media, redefining just about every political and social category that you can imagine and to say nothing about the casualness with which the 21st century American mindset now just embraces all kinds of stuff that God hates, that displeases him, that dishonors him, that he abominates and yet we just go, "Eh, it's normal. Is your spirit provoked by everything that is being cultivated by the godless, unbiblical, worldly, fleshly value system and worldview of the culture all around us as it worships the creation instead of the Creator and as it revels in self-expression and truth suppression. Or, Or be honest with yourself. Have you become acclimated to it? Have you become a little bit indifferent about it? About all of the idolatry and immorality that the wrath of God burns from heaven because of? And honestly, that's what I sense more and more, even among Christians and even among churches these days. It's just kind of this shrugging, what's the big deal? Indifference to things that God hates at best. In Athens, Paul's spirit was outraged by all of the idolatry and godlessness and worldliness all around him. Well, in American evangelicalism, outrage no longer fills the hearts of Christians when they see God's holy name and character defamed and defiled and when His glory is given to another. All around us, in all sorts of ways, people are refusing to worship God. People are refusing to honor Him and His law, refusing to submit to His word, choosing to exchange His truth for lies. And more and more and more, the church shrugs. And more and more and more in the church, outrage is being defined at at the world's insistence as fundamentally unloving and evil. You can't be outraged. That's not nice. You have to let everybody be who they are and who they want to be. Because the world says so. And because the world says so, too many Christians and churches are just wholesale abandoning moral courage, frankly. And because too many Christians are allowing themselves to be far more influenced by the world, by the godless culture, by the values of of what Paul calls this present darkness, because of that indifference has replaced zeal for God's holiness. And lethargy has drowned out godly passion. So ask yourselves, first of all, today, as you make your way through this world full of stuff that God hates, 
this world that suppresses His truth and refuses to honor Him, is your spirit provoked? Or have you just kind of gotten used to it and acclimated to the things that God hates? Have you grown indifferent to the things that dishonor Him? Be careful. Because indifference to the things that God hates is, a, is an absolutely positively sure sign that your mind and your spirit are being more influenced and informed and more captivated by the ungodly world than by the Word of God. And doesn't John say that to be a friend of the world is to be the enemy of God? Now, Having said that, there's another side to this same coin, right? Because there are lots and lots of Christians in this culture who are provoked and righteously indignant about all of the unrighteousness in this world. They're incensed about it all, but their response to it all doesn't look anything at all like Paul's response looked in Athens. So the other side of the coin, the other side of the the pendulum really, from worldly indifference, which has infected the spirits of too many Christians in this world, the other side of the pendulum is this vitriolic, fleshly hatred that comes spewing out of the hearts and the mouths of far too many other people who call themselves Christians. I mean, decrying wickedness is good. Calling evil, evil is good. Righteous indignation is good. But what do we do about it? Too too many people are content to simply express anger and animosity in fleshly ways. Attacking people, belittling people, ridiculing people. And responding to the God-hating idolatry and immorality with their own hatred and prideful sense of superiority and self-righteousness. And God hates that too. What What did Paul do when his spirit was provoked in him by all of the idolatry and creature worship and wickedness in Athens? Well, what he did is to respond to it in the same exact way that our Lord Jesus Christ responded to it, right? Not with indifference, for sure. He felt the indignation of his own spirit's provocation. He he experienced a taste in his own spirit of the hatred of idolatry and godliness that the Holy Spirit of the triune God has. And what did the triune God do? in response to the collective idolatry and immorality and ungodliness of this world. For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And the only begotten Son emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He came down here not to be served, but to serve and to give himself up as a ransom for many, to seek and to save the lost. He looked on the dark and dying world with divine love and divine compassion at the same time that he looked on all of the ungodliness and sin and evil with holy wrath and contempt. And on the cross, all of that immutable wrath of God was combined with all of the immutable mercy of God as Jesus bore the curse and made the one and only sacrifice that could ever possibly save sinners so that they could avoid the wrath of God that is to come. So there in Athens, Paul, his his spirit provoked by all of the evil around him, immediately logged onto Facebook and started calling everybody names, right? 
and spending endless hours berating sinners and petulantly and arrogantly flaunting his self-righteous superiority in their faces, right? That's what Paul did. Now, Paul went to the place that seemed to be the, the nexus of all of the ungodliness and proclaimed the truth of God in the love of God and pleaded with people to repent. See, there's a fine line here, right? On the one hand, never ever excuse your own fleshly, sanctimonious pride and arrogance and anger with godly zeal in the face of evil when the reality is it's often just your own hypocritical self-righteousness and superiority. And also, never ever confuse your own fleshly indifference to the things that God hates with love for sinners and accepting them and tolerating them when in reality it's just the hollow, empty kind of love that the world and the flesh and the devil love to promote. Paul avoided both errors, didn't he? Paul, with his mind full of the Word of God and his heart trained by the love of Christ and his spirit provoked by all of the evil in the world, Paul didn't shrug with indifference and go, eh, whatever. Let's go get some falafel. Paul didn't spew fleshly animosity and vitriol and hatred. Paul set out to preach. Paul set out to proclaim the truth of God and the and the truth of the gospel. And so guided by the holiness of God and the love of Christ, provocation led to proclamation. See, in the godly heart and life of Paul. And that's the model. So he went to the synagogue, verse 17 says, on the Sabbath day, per his normal pattern. He also went into the marketplace every day, it says, in order to reason with the people who happened to be there. You remember that word reason from last week? Dialegami, to dialogue, to have a conversation, to discuss, two-way, not monologue, talking and listening. Verse 18 says that's what he was doing and that there were some philosophers who were conversing with him, participating in the dialogue. And specifically, Luke tells us, Epicurean philosophers and Stoic philosophers. We could spend a lot of time unpacking the worldviews of those guys. Let me try to boil it down quick. Epicureans were followers of the ancient Greek philosopher Epicurus, and they believed that whatever gods there are, whatever supernatural beings there are, deities there are out there in the world that that whoever they are, they don't have any interest in this world and they don't have any interest in your life. So Epicureans just believed, you know, we're, we're left here to ourselves. Everything that happens is just a matter of chance. There's no direction of God, no sovereign purpose at, at stake here. No guidance, no revelation. The gods have just removed themselves and left people to do as they see fit, whatever they want to do. And so Epicureanism defined human desire and pleasure as the fundamental guiding principle of human life. Do what feels good to you. On the other hand, Stoicism believed that everything that happens in the world is determined by a supreme organizing principle of some kind, which they identified with the world itself. Now the truth is, as God reveals it to us, that there is a true God who is guiding everything and is distinct from His creation, right? As the Creator, He is transcendently different from His creation. And also... He is imminently involved with every aspect of His creation. So, see, the Epicureans denied divine 
imminence, divine involvement with the creation and just left humans to do whatever feels right in determining the courses of their lives. Then the Stoics denied the transcendence aspect, right? And identified whatever they thought of as as God or the guiding principle of the world, they identified it with the creation itself. Everything's God, essentially. And God is in everything. Which led the Stoics to view the world sort of through a lens of fatalism. Everything that happens is determined by the fates. Just by the, the cruel, impersonal, uncaring hand of fate. The uncaring machinations of the universe itself. That's what they believed. And so together, see, these Greek philosophies provided the foundations of all of the godlessness and all of the idolatry and all the immorality and all the worldliness in Athens. And in They were worshiping the creation instead of the creator. They were doing whatever felt good to them. And in a lot of ways, right, all of that kind of thinking still provides the foundations for the culture of our world today. People are absolutely committed to doing what is right in their own eyes and to living their lives according to their own desires and being governed by their own passions. We just take it for granted. And if if anybody in this world has a a thought of God, they think of him as a a far-off and kind of uninvolved and uncaring being somewhere. And so they tend to live as gods unto themselves. Or they believe in this kind of fatalism that sees the world as being governed just by the, the movements of the spheres and the machinations of the uncaring universe, the hand of fate, and so they go, well, whatever will be, will be. They, they, they tend to reject any ultimate meaning in reality or any ultimate truth that is binding for all people that comes from outside of us. And so the end result is the same. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Everyone gets to decide what is true for them. That's the definition of truth. It's whatever's true for you. Everyone gets to define their lives and their realities according to their own impressions and feelings and passions and desires and ambitions. But the truth is, see, the reality is that the true God created this universe and that He sovereignly rules over all of it. That He is indeed orchestrating and working everything together according to the counsel of His perfect will, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11 so clearly. And the truth is that God's nature and righteousness and goodness and truthfulness and the beauty of God's holiness is what defines everything that is actually right and good in this world. The truth is that as the king over his creation and as the God who is imminently sovereign over every aspect of his creation, he's the only one who defines reality. He's the only one who defines what's right and wrong. He's the only one who defines what human beings are responsible to do and to be in our lives. So in verse 18, these these worldly philosophers are conversing with Paul, and they get utterly confused by the things that Paul's saying. Because it's such a fundamental, foundationally radical contrast to their understanding of this world and reality. Who is this babbler? What is he on about? Who are these foreign gods that he must be speaking of? Luke says a lot of the reason for their confusion is that Paul, in in proclaiming the truth of God and the gospel, was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And see, a lot of these guys, especially the Stoics, they had no place in their thinking, metaphysically, ethically, any other way, for, for, for the resurrection of the dead, of the body. Not only did they just think it was impossible, they couldn't see why. Why would you want that? Because they tended to think of the, the physical stuff is the, of this world as, as being sort of the, 
the prison that all of our souls are trapped in and the, and the great desire and the great goal is to be freed from this one day. So matter is kind of meaningless to them and bad and, and, and spiritual stuff and enlightenment is good. So when someone dies, they saw that as the spiritual self being freed from the confines of the body and the world. Why would you want to be resurrected? So, you know, the, obviously the reality is that the one true God who made the heavens and the earth said it was good when he made it. The world's not bad. Matter's not bad. It's not evil. What's evil is rebellion against the God who made us in his image. Which is why God sent his son to die and to be raised in order to bring redemption to us and to this whole world, to our bodies even one day. So that we will live forever in a new heavens and a new earth where we'll dwell forever with physical bodies that are made immortal and will dwell in perfection eternally. Well, these philosophers just couldn't reconcile any of that with the view of the world that they had sort of invented and imagined and harbored all of their lives, with all the lies and falsehoods that they'd exchanged the truth for. So, Paul sounds novel to them. What is this guy on about? So, they like to always talk about new stuff. So, verse 19, they brought Paul to the Areopagus, which was this big, tall hill there in Athens where all the pagan temples were and where all the loftiest philosophers all the erudite ones, all of the sophisticated ones, came and got together in order to talk things through and debate with one another about how they all imagined and thought the world must work. So they pull Paul up there from the marketplace, and they, they say to all of the erudite thinkers and sophisticated philosophers of Athens, hey, you guys got to check this guy out. He's got something totally different that none of us are talking about. And see, here's the main point. They're curious, right? So Paul, his spirit provoked within him because all of the ways that they were denying God his glory is also filled with this urgency for them to start practicing true worship and repent of their sins and avoid the wrath of God that is to come. And so instead of just going around going, you're a bunch of hell-bound pagans, I can't stand any of you. He preaches Christ to them. He preaches the resurrection to them. He preaches the word of God and the gospel to them. And he does it in a way initially down in the marketplace that makes them want to hear more. He's winsome. He's respectful. They can tell he cares about them. And so they want to listen. Literally, we want to hear more, verse 19. May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange things to our ears, and we want to therefore understand what these things mean. I mean, that's awesome, right? Is that the way we come off to unbelievers? In a way that makes them feel at an instinctive level like they want to hear more? Tell us more. Tell us all about this new teaching. It's strange, but we want to know what it means. Boom, door is wide open now. So Paul says, verse 22, Men of Athens, I perceive in every way that you are very religious. It's not exactly a compliment. They probably took it as one. Well, of course we are. Obviously. But see, Paul was being very, very savvy here and piquing their interest. He knew they're looking for truth. They're just looking in all the wrong places. So, verse 23, As I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown. And the word probably has overtones of unknowable God, which was foundational for them. We can guess some things, we can speculate some things, we can know a few things about, but really 
ultimately and essentially God is just unknowable. And Paul says, what therefore you're worshiping as unknown, I proclaim to you. And in that one statement, Paul does three absolutely brilliant things. First, notice he he depersonalizes their religiosity. He refuses to acknowledge that any of these deities that they've paid homage to and created idols of actually exist. Right? He doesn't call them gods, does he? Or beings. I observe the objects that you're worshiping. These things that depended on you to make them. None of them are real, guys. None of the things you, you, you're saying they represent, none of those things actually exist. These are just imaginary deities, guys, that you're venerating. And then secondly, Paul recognized and acknowledged and asserted very boldly their ignorance. You've got an altar down here to the unknown, unknowable God. So you're just admitting, right? You, all of this philosophizing, all of this speculating, all of this erudition, all of this time that you spend up here discussing things, at the end of the day, you don't really know what ultimate reality is, do you? And then with absolute boldness and confidence, he goes, I do. I do. In all of their pomp, in all of their pretentiousness, they did not at any kind of foundational level have any assurance, any confidence, any proof, any evidence for anything that they believed that, that, that they knew was true and was real or who God really is. And they knew it. They had all these objects, they had all these guesses, and in the end, at the bottom line, they had to admit that they didn't know ultimately. And Paul's approach was simply to point that out. See, step one, point out that at a foundational level, they don't know. They don't have a basis of knowing. So I love it when an unbelieving friend says to me that they don't believe in God or the truths that are revealed in the Bible because They are convinced. They believe that the only things that can be reasonably believed are things that can be proven scientifically. And if you can't prove it scientifically, if you can't see it with your eyes and observe it and collect data on it and do experiments and make arguments and postulate theories, then you can't believe it. It's not reasonable. That's what they believe, right? The only believable things, reasonably believable things, are things that have to be proven. And then I go, prove it. And they go, well, prove what? Prove by your own standard of physical scientific proof, prove your own proposition that the only things that can be believed have to be proven. Show me the physical evidence and the data behind that claim. And see, they can't, right? They're standing on this foundation that insists that all reasonable beliefs have to have physical evidences that warrant those beliefs. And yet, the foundation itself has no physical evidences to warrant it. Now, that's how a lot of things do work in this world, right? We need physical evidence to to warrant certain beliefs. Like, say, the belief that water is composed of two hydrogen molecules and one oxygen molecule. We believe that reasonably because we can observe certain data scientifically and physically and then make a theory based on that data. The thing is, those aren't the only kind of beliefs that we believe, right? And again, what about the foundational belief itself that insists that all reasonably believable ideas have to have those kinds of evidences backing them? Because that belief doesn't have any of those kinds of evidences backing it. Where's the physical detectable evidence? Well, there isn't, and yet they believe that. Religiously, they believe that. And they believe it by what could only honestly be described as faith. 
When it comes down to it, everybody's standing on a foundation that requires faith. You just have to show them that their foundation isn't as good as yours. And that's what Paul's doing, right? So when they say the only things that can be reasonably believed are the things that can be physically proven by scientific evidences, and I say prove it by their own standard, they can't. Which means this, not only are they reasoning in a big old circle, they're actually shooting themselves in the foot. They're actually disproving and defeating their own worldview by their own standards. They're actually destroying the very foundation of all of their own beliefs. And they've painted themselves into a corner where if they're intellectually honest, they have to admit, I don't know, and I don't really have a foundation of knowing anything. I have no actual way of saying I can know anything. So see, the first step is just to point that out to them. Look, at the foundational level, your whole view of reality is utterly inconsistent and self-defeating. And it actually leads, and it historically has led, not to knowing anything, but actually to skeptically doubting everything. Sorry. See, this is exactly what Paul's doing at the Areopagus. Shaking the foundation. Guys, you've spent your whole lives trying to know the things that define ultimate meaning and reality in this world, but at the end of the day, you've come to admit that you don't know. Something's wrong with the process, guys. Then he just has all of the boldness in the world, not just to expose their lack of knowledge, but to proclaim to them the actual foundation and source of all knowledge. There's someone who made it all, guys, and he tells us the answers. Verse 23, what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Provocation has led to proclamation in all of the wisdom and grace of God. Verse 24, he's, he's not speculating like they were. He's not trying to prove things empirically like the materialists and naturalists of our day insist that we have to, right? He's, he's not playing by their rules. He's already shown that their rules lead nowhere. So he's just just proclaiming that God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth by virtue of the fact that he made it, he doesn't live in temples that are made by man. You can't confine him like these things you've made and these deities that you've imagined. He doesn't live in temples made by human hands. He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. How ridiculous to serve a God that needs you. But he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. He's sovereign over it all. And that they should seek God And perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. So notice one thing in verses 24 and 26. Notice the premium that Paul places on the doctrine of creation. There's no questioning and denying for him that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In fact, that's the foundation of everything for Paul. God made all of this in seven days. People think that's just silly, intellectually. Paul doesn't care. He proclaims it to be true. There's no denying, like happens in our day, the historicity of Adam and Eve. They probably weren't real humans at all. They're just myths in the Bible. You don't need to believe that they were real. Mainline Christian apologists are saying today. Paul just proclaims what the one true creator God has revealed to be true. God made it all from one man that he made in his image. We all came. He doesn't need us. All of us desperately need him. That's the message. He's not served by human hands, verse 25, right? God God himself points this out all throughout the scriptures. 
All of the idols of all of the world's false religions had to be carved by human hands. Isaiah 46 points out, look, you've made these idols and you're serving them and worshiping them and venerating them, but you have to carry them around in wagons. What good are they? Psalm 115, they have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They're dumb. And it's dumb to worship them because they depend on human hands. They're pathetic gods and they're no gods at all. The true God depends on no one and nothing. It's the only thing that makes sense. The true God lacks nothing. The true God needs nothing. The true God is the one who is needed by everything and everyone. Every heartbeat depends on Him. Every molecule of oxygen absorbed by every red blood cell in your body depends on Him who holds it all together by the word of His power. Our very existence depends on Him who depends on no one. In Him we live and breathe and have our very being, for indeed we are His offspring. And notice in verse 28 that in saying those things, he's, he's quoting, Luke tells us, some of their own pagan unbelieving poets. Probably Ep- Epimenides and Erastus. That's interesting, isn't it? You know, Paul's he's going, you know what, even blind squirrels find an acorn sometimes. Even unbelievers once in a while believe certain things that God has revealed to be true. And it's not a bad idea to point that out to unbelievers and then point them back to the source. Yeah, you're right about that, but guess where it came from? You're just borrowing these truths from the one who reveals them. And that's what Paul's doing here. Look, you guys are religiously pursuing truth. I'll give you that. But all the ways that you're pursuing it are, are, aren't leading you anywhere. They're only leading you to what you don't know. And yet you have this understanding that our very existence is owing to something. To someone. I'm just here to tell you who he is. I'm just here to tell you. I'm not smarter than you. But the eternal God has has revealed himself. And I'm just here to tell you and proclaim to you. He wants you to know him. He wants you to find him. But you'll never ever find him. You'll never ever know truth the way you're looking for it. You'll only find him in the man he has appointed. Verse 31. The one he's testified to by the power of resurrection which you're right, is almost too incredible to believe, but it's true, undeniably true. And unless you find him through faith in this one man, then the one true God's righteous judgment will soon find you. And so he's calling people everywhere to repent, verses 30 and 31. Repent of of worshiping the creation instead. Repent of the idols. Repent of doing things that are right in your own eyes and come to Him through Christ and live. This is is just how it works. You see how Paul very, very brilliantly looked for and found in his dialogue with these pagan unbelievers. He found all kinds of avenues. He found all kinds of opportunities through discussing their own beliefs to present truth to them to find the holes in their understanding and then show how only God and His truth can possibly fill those holes. Found opportunities to shake the foundations of their own beliefs and then point them to the one and only true foundation. The the one true God and His Word and what He has done to reveal Himself in Christ Jesus. And then call people to repent of their godless ways and come to Him through faith in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 30, he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. What's that mean? It doesn't mean that God used to overlook sin and unbelief. He just means, look, for centuries, for millennia, God has mercifully refrained from pouring out the fullness of his righteous wrath and judgment on all of this unbelief and idolatry in the world. He's he's been patient and waited to do that so that he could reveal himself in Jesus Christ and show you the way of redemption. And this same God, though, has fixed a day in which he will judge the world. 
in righteousness. And that's the day when Jesus returns. And that's what we need to tell people. 2 Corinthians 6, Paul quotes God's words to his own sinful people back in Isaiah 49. In a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. The God of the universe is saying. And then Paul says there in 2 Corinthians 6, Behold, now is the favorable time. This is the day of salvation. Because God's revelation of Himself and His holiness and His truth is complete now. The Scripture is done. It's, it's full. It's complete. Christ has come. He has told mankind all that He has to say, including what the only way and the only truth and the only life is. The only way to know Him. The only way to find Him. The only way to be made right with Him. And He has fixed a day. It's set and the clock is ticking down. And I don't know when it is and nobody else does either. But it's coming. More surely than the sun is sure to rise in the east, the day when Jesus will return and judge the whole world is coming. It's fixed in God's plan. And when it comes, the favorable time, the day of salvation, that'll be over. It will be too late for all of those who did what was right in their own eyes and lived according to their own passions and desires and exchanged all the truth for all the lies and worshipped the creation instead of the Creator and refused to repent of their godless ways and believe on Jesus for salvation. It would be too late. Eternally too late. Now look, come to an end here. You don't have to prove it. They're going to say prove it. You don't have to prove it. You don't have to concede to their standards and demands for proof. And if you try to, you're just playing the game by the rules that they, in their godlessness and unbelief, specify. You don't have to play their way. All you have to do is proclaim that everything that can be known can only be known through Him. And that what He's made known demands repentance and belief in Jesus Christ. And when you proclaim it, you can rest in the knowledge that you don't have to be the one to redeem them. Right? Some of the people that Paul proclaimed all of this to at the Areopagus, they just mocked him for it. They just laughed at him. What an idiot. <laughs> Clearly he doesn't understand as well as we do. They refused to believe. They refused to step off of their own hopeless, broken foundation and stand on the truth that God reveals. And when you go out and proclaim it, you're going to feel like an idiot because they're going to mock you too. But in, in the Areopagus, others believed. They joined Paul and they believed, including some of the erudite ones, some of the well-known ones. Said, so, you know what, I... I think he's on to something here. I think he's right. I think nothing we've been talking about makes any sense, but this, this does. And so Dionysius the Areopagite and this woman named Damaris that everybody at the Areopagus knew and respected followed Paul and became Christians. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And you don't have to be. Because faith comes through the power of the Holy Spirit by people hearing the word of God proclaimed and God opening their blind eyes and raising their dead souls to newness of life and God pouring out His Holy Spirit into their spirits into anyone who He sovereignly, mercifully desires to save. You don't have to save them. You don't have to prove anything to them. You don't have to give sight to their blind eyes. You don't have to give life to their spiritually dead souls. You just have to proclaim the purity of the truth of the gospel of the one who opened your blind eyes.
and raised you to newness of life and gave you the gift of living faith and saved you by his grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. So he's fixed today in his perfect wisdom and purposes to judge the whole world. You don't have to go around spewing your vitriolic, sanctimonious judgment. God's going to take care of it. You bring the love of Christ to bear on the favorable day of salvation and preach the gospel because every day before that fixed day is the favorable day, the day of salvation, the time of opportunity. And you can show them the futility of every other way and you can proclaim him who is the only way and the only truth and the only life and you can plead with them to repent. And as you do, God will save whom he will save. Amen? We're out of time, so let's pray. Our Father, help us to have confidence in this. Help us to be convicted by this. Help us, Father, to feel provoked in our spirits about all that is ungodly in this world. To not tolerate it. To not like it. To not be comfortable with it. To not be indifferent towards it. And yet, Father, to be full of a compassionate love for this world that is the same as our Savior had when He came and suffered and died. And help us to feel this bold urgency that Paul did and give us wisdom from Your Word and courage and confidence to be lights in the darkness and to preach the Gospel and to plead with people to repent of their sins and believe on Christ and be saved. Father, help Jesus to be the only focus of our minds and our hearts in this world. Help us not to be distracted by all that is this world. Help the world's agenda not to define our ambitions, our desires, our goals, our priorities, but help it be Jesus alone who is our vision, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let's all stand together and let's sing that from page 12. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Let's sing together.